Hello, wrestling fans. Welcome to the March 2023 edition of Charting the Territories. My name is Hall of Famer Al Getz. And along with me this month is my co-host, John Boucher. Hello, Hall of Famer Al Getz, and happy birthday. Yes, that is right. So uh, this podcast is coming out on Thursday, March 16th. However, John and I are recording it on Monday, March 13th, which is my 52nd birthday. So I know later on this week, MJF is going to have his rebar mitzvah on All Elite Wrestling. I guess this would be my quad bar mitzvah. (laughs) Although, don't tell anybody, but I actually never was bar mitzvahed. Really? Really. Wow. As a matter of fact, yes. So so maybe I'll just, you know, maybe I'll get bar mitzvahed. But happy birthday to me. I, yeah. I hope I don't sound too hoarse. I went out to see Steel Panther in concert last night. Oh, my goodness. And I did something along the... I tell you, there was an opening band called Tragedy, and they do metal versions of, like, Bee Gees songs. Huh. And it was amazing. Uh, Not just Bee Gees, they did disco songs. They also did I'm So Excited by the Pointer Sisters. Uh, They did You're the One That I Want from Greece. They started out playing the intro to Raining Blood by Slayer, but it segued into It's Raining Men. (laughs) And, you know, you you never thought you would enjoy a Slayer slash Weather Girls mashup until you hear it, and then you do. Wow, that sounds fun. But this podcast is not about disco songs covered by metal bands. This uh, this podcast is allegedly about professional wrestling. So I guess we should probably talk about professional wrestling. And we're going to look at Georgia Championship Wrestling in 1971. This is part of our A Year in the Life series where uh, for the last few months, we've looked at different territories in 1971. And if you listened earlier and heard me say that I'm 52 years old, if you did some quick math, You'll also realize that 1971 was the year I was born. So we're we're recapping everything that was going on in professional wrestling. The year Hall of Famer Al Getz was born. And I refer to myself as a Hall of Famer because last month I was inducted into the Southern States Wrestling East Tennessee Hall of Fame. I came out of retirement for one night only for Southern States Wrestling. I had two spots and I blew one of them. So I'm, I'm batting 500 in my coming out of retirement. <laughs> it was not my best moment, but I managed the progressive liberal Dan Richards. Oh, who, uh, got a lot of a lot of publicity uh, several years ago and yeah. had another round of it more recently. And I tell you, if, if the timing had been different of when he came around and when I was active, we that there was we really worked well with one another. And, and I think particularly uh, my Duke of New York gimmick in Tennessee really works well managing someone lo- like the progressive liberal. So like we could have had a lot of fun and, and caused a lot of havoc and started a lot of riots had the timing <laughs> worked out. But you'll have to settle for uh, a one night only being managed by a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Now, in 1971, this is the year before everything went crazy in Georgia Championship Wrestling. Uh, In 1972 was when Ray Gunkel passed away, which, of course, set off the war between the NWA's promotion in Georgia and Ray's widow, Anne, starting up All South. 
And this is five years before the television station that aired Georgia Championship Wrestling was first beamed via satellite to cable television providers in the Southeast and Midwest, becoming the nation's first super station. So this is, you know, a, a little bit before Georgia Championship Wrestling became a really big deal. And I think if you look at the roster for the territory, not only is it, you know, not as stacked as it would be in later years. It's also a pretty stale roster. The same wrestlers uh, in the main event scene had been in the same roles for a long time, which was not typically the case. Usually there's what I'll call one side of the roster of a territory will will remain the same. For example, in uh, the McGurk territory, you have Watts and Hodge in the early 70s. Yeah. Fending off rotating cast of heels. Same thing with Bruno and the WWF. Uh, same in other places as well. Sometimes it's more maybe half of the guys, half of the main eventers in a territory are homesteaders and they're facing guys that rotate in and out. Or the homesteaders will switch, you know, from face to heel or heel to face uh, just enough to freshen up. But here we've got the same guys in the same main event, main event roles for a few years. And, you know, there's only so much you can do that the fans haven't seen before. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk a little bit about the concept of local promoters and how in some territories, local promoters seem to have a lot more say in how things went in their town. So, John, when you, you know, you're about the same age as I. So when you're growing up mm-hmm. as a teenager watching wrestling, did you have any concept of uh, local promoters? Obviously, we both were growing up in the Northeast. And, you know, we just saw them as WWF shows. We didn't know if there were separate people responsible for running the Meadowlands or the Garden or the Coliseum or, you know, the the shows in Poughkeepsie. But did you know anything or think about things like that? No, I knew nothing and and thought nothing about it. The only inkling that I would have even been aware of a promoter is during the intro to uh, All-Star or, or Championship Wrestling, where they would announce, this is Championship Wrestling uh, promoted by Phil Zacco. <laughs> I have, you know, had no idea who Phil Zacco was or what, right. what his, what that, but that was, that was, that was my entire knowledge of a, a promoter. Well, we'll know, no idea. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about Fred Ward a little bit later as the local promoter for several towns in Georgia. Um, We'll talk more about the roster and the role of local promoters. If you want to see a wealth of information and statistics about Georgia Championship Wrestling in 1971, be sure to check out the third installment of our A Year in the Life series at chartingtheterritories.com. And we also have all our regular features, including John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Will the hot streak continue, John? I hope so. I hope so. I hope so, too. Uh, This month I learned, and we kick things off with Stuff John Bought Me Off eBay. Now, for the last few months, John has been getting me mostly audio or video-related items, like records, laser discs, and whatnot. But this month, we return to the good old-fashioned print medium. Uh, Mm -hmm. Recall that each and every month, John is authorized to spend approximately $50 of my money buying me items off eBay. And this month he bought me two items. The first is a program for the June 16th, 1961 
card in Oklahoma City. So this was a Leroy McGurk card. And this is June 1961. We talked about 1961 in some of the earliest episodes of this podcast. And this one, this particular card, as I mentioned, June 16th, the main event was the great Bolo, Al Lovelock, versus Mr. Nelson Royal. And there's a there's photos on the front page of the Bolo wearing his mask and a very young Nelson Royal. Of course, but, you know, uh, by the time we saw him uh, in the, you know, mid 80s, he was about yeah. 80 <laughs> years old. <laughs> but uh, here to you, 20 some odd years earlier, he looks young and dashing. But this was a heel versus heel matchup. In fact, the program pretty much, you know, writes out the angle that happened the week before where Nelson was trying to help the great Bolo in the main event against Tiny Smith uh, grabbed a chair and tried to hit Smith, but accidentally KO'd Bolo. And I believe this was uh, Nelson was finishing up in the territory. So they did uh, heel versus heel things around the horn for like two weeks with Bolo going over Royal and then Royal left. Hmm. Also on the card is uh, Irish Mike Clancy yeah. uh, taking some time out from his pizza empire to face a newcomer named Bruiser Collins. And Bruiser is much better known to wrestling fans as Ripper Collins. But at this time, he was merely a bruiser. And there's a picture again, you know, having seen pictures of Ripper Collins from the late 70s and early 80s from his runs in Hawaii and on the West Coast, you know, his his face was rather leathery and he looked, you know, like he had aged, you know, 50 years in the 20 years he had been wrestling. But here he is uh, on the back cover. He's fresh faced, young lad, big boy, big guy. But uh, uh, you can definitely see he's much younger in the face. There's also a picture of Irish Mike Clancy looking looking in very good shape. Also on the card, Joe McCarthy, Ani Wikiwiki, Bob Boyer, and Tulsa's favorite firefighter, Red McKim. Now, what's interesting about this program is I've seen uh, programs from Oklahoma City, and I've seen the Tulsa Tussler, which was the program from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they're very different programs. Uh, in later years, of course, Norm Keitzer did the programs for McGurk and they basically, they had the same, not only the same layout, but the same exact program would be distributed throughout the territory. And I think they had, you know, insert cards or an insert piece of paper with that night's lineup. But here there's a very separate layout and design for the programs in Oklahoma city and Tulsa. And there's some ads, some local ads are always fun to look at. Um, there's an oil uh, distributing company, a laundromat, a uh, Chinese restaurant called the House of Chan, a, uh, a loan agency. There's also an ad for the wrestling TV show. And we've mentioned this before, but in Oklahoma City, the wrestling was done live on WKY TV, which was Channel 4. It was done live on Saturday night. From 10.30 to 11.30. Which, when you think about it, is interesting. Because uh, one of the great mysteries and one of the reasons I started trying the territories was because I really wanted to know how many shows, how many house shows, did these territories run? Were they were the guys running, you know, were the guys wrestling seven days a week, twice on Sundays? Were their days off? How did that all work? Knowing that there was TV in Oklahoma City, and it was a, from what I've seen of TV results, it was live every week, and it usually consisted of three matches, 
of which the same four wrestlers were involved. Uh, Similar to the spot show lineups that we've seen in this era, it's two singles matches followed by a tag match involving the same four guys. So as far as did they run other house shows in addition to this TV on Saturday night, they could have because it was a very small crew working the TV. Another thing to consider, given that it started at 1030, it's very possible these guys wrestled at a house show somewhere in the outskirts of Oklahoma City on Saturday night. And when they were done, just scooted over the TV station. Now, while that sounds crazy on the surface, in my research of Huntsville, Alabama, I know they also did live TV on Saturday nights. And I've seen house show listings for uh, a town called Albertville, which is just outside of Huntsville, also on Saturday night. So it makes sense that those guys would work this house show and then just scoot on over to the studio and do TV. So I, but of course they also might not have worked a house show. They might just have done TV. So that's a long way of saying we still don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the reasons I love these, these old programs and why, like, I know, I know this isn't uh this is a, sh- a show, a card you already have results for, not anything, not a brand new discover anything. I just love these programs, especially these from like the early 60s, because you get so much information that you might not already be aware of. Just like a little, they'll give you the angle from the TV the previous week or something as simple as just when, when, when is the TV on and on what night, you know, right. like that, sort that of stuff. helps always us so interesting to me. Helps us fill in the blanks. But also talking about the angle, it's the angle was done at the house show. And this is something we say time and time huh. again on this podcast. In this era, the angles in this era that set up rematches, at least, typically happened on the house show itself. And then the local promos, or in this case, you know, perhaps the TV you know, was just done for Oklahoma City, they sort of recap what happened. In this case, it would be last night, right? Because they're doing the TV mm-hmm. on Saturday night. The house show is on Friday. So they're saying, folks, if you missed what happened at the Stockyard at the Stockyards Coliseum last night, here Bolo did this to Royal, blah blah blah. They bring out Bolo, they bring out Royal, they set up the match. But the angles happen at the house shows themselves. They do. They typically do what I will call an introductory angle on TV to establish why these guys are, you know, want to face one another. But then after the first match, if they are going to do rematches. The things that set up those rematches typically happen at the house shows themselves. Hmm. But the other item you sent me, John, is, is the real find. Oh. And this is volume three, number two of a newsletter entitled the Oklahoma Cyclones, which oh, yeah. is the uh, newsletter for the fan club of the Briscoe Brothers. Indeed. So apparently there was a big fan of their auto body shop, I guess. No, (laughs) this was for their wrestling achievements. And this is not just any old edition of the Briscoe fan club newsletter, because it is the one that came out immediately after Jack Briscoe became the NWA world heavyweight champion. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fan club president is a gentleman named Wayne Lebo. I did some Googling to see if we could uh, figure out what Wayne has been up to since then. 
Couldn't find anything, but I did find something interesting. Someone had tweeted out something about Wayne Lebo. And another gentleman responded to the tweet saying, Wayne, uh, that when this guy wanted to start a Bob Armstrong fan club, it was Wayne that sort of showed him, you know, taught him how to do that, how to set up the fan club and, and do huh. all that. And this person, after running the Bob Armstrong fan club for a little while, passed it off to somebody else. John, who was that somebody else? That was our friend. James E. Cornette. Yes, the one and only James E. Cornette. Uh, before he was professional wrestling manager extraordinaire, was a photographer and the president of Bob Armstrong's fan club. So this uh, this edition of the Oklahoma Cyclones, it's 16 pages. It's got a table of contents. It's got a message from the president, Wayne Lebo, uh, and then a report on... Jack Briscoe being the champion, of course. And this was, you know, this was when uh, they made a new title belt and it was presented to Harley Race uh, literally 40 minutes before he lost it. <laughs> they get, you know, they, they, they gave it to him at the beginning of the match in Houston. Uh, they've also have a few match, a, a few weeks worth of clippings from Houston sort of setting it up. And in the weeks leading up to Jack getting the title shot, he had to go through, um, the Missouri Mauler, managed by Gary Hart, and uh, and Terry Funk, and uh, and Dory Funk as well. So this, yeah, so, speaking to, of Dory yeah. Funk, isn't this right around the time uh, of Dory seniors, seniors passing? Yes, and that that is also mentioned in here. You you spoiled it. That's on page fifteen, ah, okay. John. I'm going in order. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. But yeah, so it's got, a, I think, a firsthand account of someone who was in Houston for the title change. Uh, and then as most of these newsletters did, they plug other newsletters um, for uh, for other fan clubs. It's also got some recaps of Briscoe exploits uh, of both Jack and Jerry in Texas and Florida and St. Louis. Uh, you can get some uh, T-shirts. They have official T-shirts, not only for the Briscoes, but also for Thunderbolt Patterson. And the Thunderbolt Patterson T-shirt has a picture of Thunderbolt, and then it says TP Power. Hmm. Uh, Which to me reads like toilet paper power, but, you know, my mind is in the gutter, I guess. Uh, There's also an article... Uh, I'm not sure what paper it's originally from, but it's one of those where they talk about the various attendances for sporting events for the year. And in this case, pro wrestling was actually third. Uh, First and second were horse racing and auto racing with a total attendance of 45 million in 1972. Pro wrestling comes in second at 35 million. I'm going to say that's high, but not. By a not not by a huge amount, college football comes in at thirty three million. Major League Baseball twenty five million, college basketball fifteen million, pro football ten million, pro basketball and pro hockey tied at ten million, roller derby five and a half million, and boxing at five million. Wow, I. I don't know. I just don't know how much stock to put in these numbers. <laughs> I will say pro football was nothing, was nowhere near as popular in 1972 as it is now. 
Plus, also keep in mind, they play far less games than all the other sports. So that number might not be as uh, egregiously low as some might want yeah. to believe. But, you know, again, any any and, and those were taken. This is in a, a normal newspaper article, but the stats were taken from the April 1973 issue of Wrestling Monthly magazine. So, mm-hmm. again, the source is from a wrestling magazine. So take for that <laughs> yeah. what you will. It's also a spotlight on a young up-and-comer by the name of Kevin Sullivan, the oh. Boston strong boy. Strong boy, huh? Uh, and then, as you mentioned earlier, there's a mention of Dory Funk Sr. passing away. Uh, both of these are very well-preserved 50-year-old and 60-year-old artifacts that John bought for me off eBay. Only so, the best for you. Yeah. Had, did, had you heard of the Briscoe Fan Club before procuring this item? Yes. I uh, have – I'm not sure if I have – I have a couple of those uh, Oklahoma Cyclone newsletters. I'm not sure if I have that one. I'll have to, to check and see which, uh, which this, I have. I have this, was new, this was new to me. Yeah, that I, – I, I, I've, I've, I'll have to go through and see. I'll, I'll post when the uh, when, when we when we uh, show comes out. I'll post what I have to, in it to accompany okay. yours. Yeah, and we'll tag our, we'll tag our, our pal Gerald Briscoe. Let him uh, oh, nice. relive some nice memories as well. But from <laughs> Oklahoma to Georgia, let's dive in to Georgia Championship Wrestling. And John, I think I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but the thing that got me into pro wrestling was Georgia Championship Wrestling. I was visiting my grandmother in Florida, flipping through the channels. I had no idea what wrestling was and uh, came upon Georgia Championship Wrestling. But I didn't even know I was watching wrestling because what I switched on to was an interview with Dusty Rhodes. Oh, baby. And yeah, he was, you know, doing the full on Dusty thing. And I, I, you know, vividly recall being entranced and saying to myself, I don't know what this is, but this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my up to that point in time, very young life. And yeah. that probably would have been 81 or so. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, John, what's your earliest memories of, of specifically Georgia championship wrestling? Georgia was a little, uh, a little later for me, probably, uh, probably late, the late 82, maybe early 83, right when we first got uh, cable television in Connecticut. Um, and 83 is not the best year for Georgia wrestling, but for me, it was wrestling. Right. And that, at that point, as a, you know, nine, 10 years old, it's a wrestling, it's on TV. I'm going to watch it. I'm not picking apart the booking. I'm just yeah, it's, it's we're not, yeah. We're not sitting there overanalyzing things. <laughs> like, like we're about to spend the next hour plus overanalyzing uh, Georgia in 1971, but you know, at the time you just enjoy it. And, but that's, what's so fun about, you know, charting these territories is all of them had up, up years and down years. Um, and you know, what listeners and people our age might, you know, think of when they think about Georgia was how loaded the roster was, how all the top stars were there because they had cable TV and they were running the big venue in the Omni. Um, but 1971 was before all that there was no Omni. I think it opened either in late 72 or early 73. There was no superstation that didn't happen until I think 75 or 76. And at this point, Georgia, particularly outside of Atlanta, 
you know, was just a, a, a regular territory. In fact, Atlanta, while still a, while a big city in the early 70s, was nowhere near the population center that it is now. Uh, you know, of course, once I moved here, that's, you know, well, no, it was the, it was the, it was the Olympics in 96 that really uh, led to a significant increase in the population in, in Atlanta and the surrounding areas. So we're going to dig in to Georgia championship wrestling in 1971. Of course, at charting the territories, we use the spot rating statistic to measure a wrestler's average position on the cards and then we split the roster up into some categories based on their average weekly spot rating. And main eventers all have a spot rating between 0. 0.80 and 1. And the main eventers in Georgia in 1971, on the babyface side, you have El Mongol, Bill Dromo, and Paul DeMarco. And DeMarco was finishing up a run here at the very beginning of the year. I think he's gone by mid-February. On the heel side, you have the Assassins. You have Big John, who is Big Bad John, but here he seems to have been billed as just Big John. Okay. Though he was a heel, so he was a bad guy. Mm. And Buddy Colt. Uh, and the Assassins, of course, were Renesto and Hamilton. Renesto is generally believed to have been the booker at this time. Uh, I'm not saying he wasn't. I'm just saying I've never seen an official list uh, you know, of bookers and their start dates and end dates. Of course, we know come 72 in the split, Renesto had been the booker just before the split. Yeah. I have no reason to believe he's not the booker. I just like hedging hedging things and saying he is generally believed to have been the booker because that is a statement that, uh, wording it that way, it's absolutely true. By the time 1971 ended, Buddy Colt, the Assassins, El Mongol, and Dromo had all been in the territory for the better part of two years straight, um, notwithstanding the occasional Japan tour for uh, a couple of those guys. And as we said earlier, you know, many territories featured homesteaders on one side of the roster or, you know, the main eventers, half of them would be homesteaders and half of them would be rotating in and out. Here, we've got out of... Um, Let's see, you have four heels and three baby faces and five of them. So five out of seven were guys that had been here for two years straight. And in the case of DeMarco, in the case of the two that weren't, one was DeMarco, who's only here for a month and a half in 1971. And Big Bad John, who's just a rotating heel that comes in for several months and then leaves. But the rest of the main event scene it's not only the same guys, but they're in the same roles. The assassins and cult are the heels. Mongol and Dromo are the baby faces. Bobby Shane had just left, at, I think, the first week of January, and he had been a baby face. He had been a heel for a while. He turned baby face, but then finished up and went to uh, he went to Gulf Coast before going to Florida later on in '71. So you know. It's a it's a stale roster, and John, I'm not generally one for what ifs, but this is a pretty interesting what if. Yeah, uh, you know, if Ray Gunkel had not passed away when he did, or if Paul Jones and Buddy Fuller hadn't, you know, decided to squeeze and Gunkel out, what might have happened for Georgia Championship Wrestling? Because that same stale roster, with the exception of I think. Uh, no, I think even Buddy Colt 
No, Colt left before the split. I'm not positive. He may have, he may not have. But still, you've got the assassins, El Mongol and Dromo, all in the same roles, even a year later in late 1972. So if the split hadn't have happened and Renesto stayed as Booker and kept doing the same thing, you know, would Georgia Championship Wrestling have become what we all, you know, remember it becoming not too long afterwards. So John, your thoughts. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think if everything stays the same, they keep Ernesto as Booker much longer once. Cause I, um, you know, to your, to your point, I don't think that the fans will continue to pay money to see this for you know, three years. Yeah, um, uh, 100%, 100% as is. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have good attendance figures to know if the attendance had shown any signs of a decrease because of this. So it's, it's hard to say. Um, what I would say is this. The Omni is still built in late 72, early 73. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, they're, they're already bringing in outside names just for these shows in Atlanta. They bring in Bobo and Wilbur Snyder and Bockwinkle and Blassie. So, they're probably still going to bring in those outside names and, and maybe some of them will, you know, get featured more regularly. TBS is still going to become, well, it wasn't called TBS back then, but you know, it's still going to become a super station in 75 or 76. So, you know, the question is, are, are how long Ernesto had been Booker? And if this territory had a history of, you know, keeping things fresh with different bookers. Because realistically, if Ernesto was was going to be removed as Booker, the assassins are leaving. And Mm. if the assassins decide to leave just because of the cyclical nature of the territories, well, then Ernesto can't stay on as Booker. So I, as much as we, you know, I was, there's an article on ProWrestlingStories.com about how, you know, Gunkel's death was, you know, set off a chain of events that led to, you know, Georgia Championship Wrestling becoming what it became. I think for the most part, there are other factors that played into it that still would have happened. So I, you know, I don't, I, I don't see the, the big, you know, boom in, in GCW and the influx of talent. It might not have come in in December, 1972, but by the time in 73, when they started running the Omni and a couple of years later, when their TV was going to be broadcast uh, throughout the country, yeah, they're going to step up their their talent pool significantly, regardless. Yeah, and also too, too it's once once you know the they become the the super station. I think that also becomes a place where you know it, whether or not they deliberately step up their talent, their talent will be stepped up because people will want to come there to be to get national exposure. Right. Yeah, um, th- just like in the early days of the WWF on USA, they would show you know matches from other territories because it was a yeah. big deal to to be yeah. on on nationwide TV, which really didn't exist in any form aside from network TV, and and wrestling wasn't on network TV after the late fifties or early sixties or so. Yeah. So it it's there there were other forces at play that were going to make it that were going to make Georgia have to force you know they were going to force Georgia to up their game talent wise and all the things that ended up happening in December, 1972 going into early 73 with Watts coming in, Mr. Wrestling Two, uh, Graham and Barnett getting involved. 
they all may very well have happened anyway uh, if the Gunkel situation hadn't played out how it did when it did. But again, we're just speculating and, and having fun and guessing, and we will never know because despite what those Marvel movies tell you, I don't believe in the multiverse or the quantum verse or the megaverse or whatever, the Ant-Man verse, whatever one they're promoting this week. <laughs> the Gunkelverse. The Gunkel oh, the Gunkelverse. Well, I used to, you know, my friend Dylan Hales, who is involved with uh, IWTV. Uh, for a while, he had his hands in a lot of the promotions that were on that uh, on that service. Not only here in the South with the Scenic City and um, Southern Underground Pro in Nashville and Action Wrestling in Georgia, but also with Beyond Wrestling in the Northeast. A lot of promotions, and, and so I, I call that the Dylan verse. Because a lot of the things he was doing, you know, a lot of things Beyond was doing were meant to, in a small way, um, you know, sync up with what was happening with the Scenic City Invitational. Even if it wasn't a direct correlation, there were, you know, there there were things done, you know, uh, to keep things in line, to set things up, uh, of course, for AC Mack getting the uh, IWTV World Wrestling title Um which was a title that was, you know, mainly up in the Northeast, but on a show down here in Georgia last year, AC Mack won it and defended it throughout the IWTV uh, Dylan verse for quite some time. So, yeah, Uh, if you want to look, if you want to learn more about many of the main eventers in Georgia in 1971, our A Year in the Life on ChartingTheTerritories.com has links to some great articles which are usually in the form of obituaries from Slam Wrestling. And we also have profiles on the site on El Mongol and the Assassins. Our pal David Gibb, who's a real actual author, wrote the Assassins profile. And I uh, dipped my proverbial pen in a proverbial jar of proverbial ink to write the profile for El Mongol. Although I will say David uh, did some uh, little proofreading and editing and helped me spice it up and make it eloquent. But the profiles, what the, what those are meant to do, they look at briefly at the paths these wrestlers took prior to 1971, and then it just offers some details about what they did in the territory we're focusing on during that year. So, uh, you know, I, we have a little introduction about the assassins and, and when they first got together, how they first got together and where they went prior to 71. And then it focuses on what they did in Georgia in 1971. And the same thing goes with El Mongol. And of course, there are many wrestlers over the years who have claimed to be from Mongolia or called themselves the Mongol in some fashion. But to fans of Georgia Championship Wrestling in the late 60s, early 70s, there was only one, and that was El Mongol, Raul Molina. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Year in the Life also features the one-of-a-kind territory fact sheet, which uh, the initial design was this uh, of this was made by Nick Bond, who writes for The Ringer, and he, he really did a great job with this. It's what they call an infographic but it has uh, a bunch of unique data points and stats that really no one has ever tracked before for a professional wrestling territory. It's chock full of unique and interesting 
info presented uh, in a very nifty looking way. So, John, I know you're not the the numbers guy that I am. No, oh, so no. I sort of want oh, your no. thoughts on uh, not just the fact sheet in general, but the one for Georgia in 1971. If there was anything in the fact sheet this month that you found particularly interesting. What really jumped out at me was and not a numbers thing, of course, because I'm not a numbers guy. But the thing I found the most interesting was that the bullet. Speaking of the bullet again, Bob Armstrong was not not seeing him as one of the top single stars, not involved in one of the top single feuds. I think he's involved in one of the top tag team feuds, perhaps. Yes, but he is. I, I know it's only four or five years in his career, but I just, I'm still surprised to to not see him. Uh, you know. And he's sort of inching his way up there once you go deeper into the into the, the blog post. But I was so surprised not to see him there. Uh, yeah, well, when we look at the spot rating, as I mentioned, the cutoff for a main eventer is a 0.8. And Bob's weekly spot rating in 71 was a 0.78. So yeah. he's just sort of bubbling under. But <laughs> you mentioned he wasn't any singles feuds. And, and realistically, he was a guy that was more often than not in a tag team in 1971. But here's the catch. In different towns in the territory, he had different partners. Uh So in some places, he's teaming with Bill Dromo. In some places, he's teaming with El Mongol. For a while, he's teaming with Dick Steinborn. And this is something we'll get into a little later when we talk about the local promoters is, you know, they, they seem to have, Fred Ward seemed to have a little more flexibility in doing, you know, doing... Uh, booking his towns that didn't necessarily have to follow what's going on in Atlanta. So it's a little different. The other thing to think about, as we mentioned earlier, in the city of Atlanta itself, they're bringing in a lot of outside guys for those main events like Bobo, Blassie, Wilbur Snyder. So if Mm. Bob Armstrong is in a main event in the smaller towns, he's not going to be in the main event in Atlanta. Also, Buddy Fuller and Ray Gunkel are part-time wrestlers but in particular Gunkel works Atlanta most weeks I think about well about half the time so again he's a main eventer in Atlanta which means someone like Bob Armstrong is going to be moved down a notch in Atlanta as composed to the rest of the territories but you know the thing that interests me are what I call booking uh philosophy uh, of different territories and uh, on these territory fact sheets, I track the number of title changes as well as the number of turns in each territory for each year. And in Georgia, there are actually five titles, but only two of them were recognized throughout the territory. And that's the Georgia heavyweight title and the Georgia tag team titles. The other three titles are all Fred Ward recognized titles. So they're only defended in Fred's towns, which are Macon, Columbus, and to a lesser extent, Albany. But those titles change more often than the uh, two main titles. The Georgia heavyweight title only changed twice during the year. The Georgia tag team titles changed four times. Fred's titles, he had two tag team titles. One changed hands seven times. One changed hands three times. And then the Columbus heavyweight title changed three times as well. Hmm. So, you know, Fred is having a lot more title changes in his towns, whereas the two main titles were much more protected. Hmm. Uh, So that's just, you know, a little insight into 
how these territories function and, and what the pacing was of their title changes. We've talked about in the past, you know, when an angle happened on WWWF TV in 1974, that's a huge deal. That's like a once a year thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the title, the, the world title changed hands, not, not even once a year, once every few years. Yeah. And the tag team titles, maybe two or three per year. Um, so it's a much slower paced territory. And of course, when we get to places like Gulf Coast and Goulas, I don't even know how many title changes there we're going to show during the year because it's, it's going to be crazy. But it's just another way of comparing these territories and coming to the realization that they each had their own style. And sometimes it's related to the booker because uh, there are some territories when a new booker comes in, the frequency of these title changes and, and other things changes significantly. But a lot of times it's just due to the territory itself and what the owners of the territory want to have happen, which is probably based on their knowledge of the area itself. Yeah. Uh, they, they know what the, what type of product their fans respond best to. And generally speaking, they give them, they give the fans what they want. Back to the roster, one of the main one of the main eventers we mentioned earlier was Bill Dromo. Uh, a few months ago, uh, my friend Scott Hensley, who we talked about the Scenic City Invitational earlier, he's one of the promoters of the Scenic City events in Chattanooga, and he's a huge collector of autographs, baseball, wrestling, politics, anything you can think of. He's an autograph hound for it. Huh. Uh, but he had recently acquired a autograph photo of bill dromo and his comment to me was i feel like he had some really good runs everywhere he went but is kind of a forgotten guy because he retired for the most part before the mid 80s boom and john i feel that uh truer words may never have been spoken <sighs> yeah you know, when, I, you, I, when you think about the wrestlers that we guys are our age remember whose peak was before our time it's the ones that were still around when we first started watching wrestling. Yep. And I think of somebody like Omar, At uh, Omar Atlas, yeah. who was only a year younger than Dromo, but was doing WWF enhancement gigs on TV as late as 92. Oh, wow. I think more people our age remember Omar Atlas than they do Bill Dromo because Dromo, I think, was pretty much out of the business by the end of 1982. Yeah, I I feel a guy I feel similarly about uh, is Don Leo Jonathan. You know, out of the business by 1980, uh, before the wrestling boom, not a ton of footage, let alone of him in his prime. Uh, a lot of that has to do with where he worked. Um, and whenever I talk about Don Leo or we talk about Dromo in this case, I always contrast that with a guy like Mark Lewin, who is able to stay healthy, you know, for another five or six years. Uh, and sort of capitalize on a little bit of that that mid '80s wrestling boom, and consequently is probably slightly more well known, even if it's just people knowing him as the Purple Haze. Right. Even know? if it's just, it's just a matter of name recognition, I guess what what yep. they call the Q rating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. Which have you heard of this guy? I think the wrestlers from the '60s and '70s that made it till '85 have a much higher Q rating than wrestlers who were done by '82. 83. Yep. Absolutely. But Dromo wasn't just a pro wrestler. He was an amateur oh, no. wrestler of uh, some regard. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, there's uh, an article on Slam Wrestling, uh, which we have a link to. It's a, a good refresher. Uh, but, John, tell us a little bit about the amateur wrestling career of Bill Drummo. It's interesting because he spent so much time in Georgia and was so popular there, lived there for so long, uh, you know, up until he passed away. Um, and I didn't realize until I read the various obituaries years ago, like I had assumed he was born and bred in Georgia or at least in the southern southeastern U.S., which is not the case at all. Uh, born and raised in and around Winnipeg, Canada. Um and I believe he started even before amateur wrestling he was an amateur boxer, like 15 years old or something. A um, couple years later, transitioned into amateur wrestling in his late teens. One of my one of my favorite Bill Dromo quotes is that he opted for amateur wrestling after finding football too rough. <laughs> I have to say, like, I really love. Not often you get that sort of candor from a professional wrestler or ex-professional wrestler saying, "Yeah, that was too rough for me, so I decided to go with with wrestling instead." Um, and it's interesting because so many of the the wrestlers that used to be football players, the thing that got them to switch was an injury. Yeah. But they yeah. probably would never admit, <laughs> you know, that's why. Uh, so, it, it, like you said, it's refreshing to hear yeah, Ramo really admit that. He wrestled amateur, I think, five or six years or so. And was, like I said, like a, big, a big deal, a very accomplished amateur, silver medalist at the British Empire Games, something like a 21 and, and 2 record. Uh, depending on what source you're you're looking at, um, one of those losses was to another future pro wrestler, Gordon Nelson, uh, who I think would cross paths with Bill years later in Florida. Um, and in 1956, uh, Dromo was part of the Canadian Olympic trials, and we have a, a little nice little article that I pulled that shows uh, him there in uh, Manitoba. Yeah, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and shows him. I don't believe he made the Olympics that year and uh, started training as a pro pretty much right around that time, working with light heavyweight Dave Piper, whose name you will actually notice from that newspaper article, and Gordon Mackey. Gordon Mackey ran the uh, St. Boniface Boxing and Wrestling Club in Winnipeg and would go on to be a well-respected sports physical therapist. Uh the 72 Munich Olympics and therapist coordinator for the boxing, wrestling, and weightlifting teams in the 76 Olympics and worked for all the Winnipeg pro football and uh, hockey teams. So yeah, very, 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 very highly accomplished amateur wrestler was Dromo pre, pre-pro years. Yeah, so from amateur wrestler to pro wrestler and uh, even not long into his career, he served as something as a mentor to up-and-coming young wrestlers. Uh, superstar Billy Graham mm. uh, made note of Dromo in Graham's autobiography. And this is from the article on Slam Wrestling, uh, which was posted shortly after Dromo passed away. But Graham said that Dromo was one of the few uh, veterans in Stampede Wrestling when Billy first broke in that, that gave Billy advice on uh, how to get gear and uh, lent him his boots until the, the boots that Graham ordered arrived. Uh, and then also, uh, Graham noted that whenever uh, they would go to town together, that Dromo would drive in his car. And he noticed that, that Dromo had pictures of his family uh, on the visor. And, you know, uh, Graham was, you know, relatively young at the time, you know, realized that as often as Dromo was on the road, he probably didn't get to see his family 
all that often. So having them, you know, right there on the visor in his car was his way of staying close to them, even though he was physically very far away. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, we've got some footage of Bill Dromo. You mentioned earlier, uh, guys like Don Leo, there's such, such few, uh, clips available to find. And there's not yep. a ton for Dromo, but there is some stuff from uh, the mid-70s forward. So, uh, of course, we put uh, playlists of all these clips that John curates and recommends together on our YouTube channel. So you can search for Charting the Territories on YouTube. But, John, tell us a little bit about what footage uh, our listeners can find from Bill Dromo. There was, I found one, and I, I chose this one from... December 1964, I believe it's from. Uh, and it's, it, I don't want anyone to get turned off immediately. This It is sort of like a perfect storm of stuff a modern U.S. wrestling fan would skip through on YouTube. You know, it's black and white footage, Japanese commentary, six-man tag match, two out of three falls, 40 minutes plus. But it's 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 uh, it's really worth it, I, I promise. It's a, it's a, it's a great... It's a great tag match with Bill Dromo, uh, the Destroyer, and Kurt von Stroheim uh, versus a young, a young giant Baba. Uh, I'm gonna tear these names apart: uh, Michiyaki Yoshimura and Toyonobori. Am I pronouncing those correctly? Al, do you have any idea? Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> I, I was thought it was Toyonobori. I thought there was a, Toyonobori. That yeah. sounds, but that I, sounds, could, I could be very wrong. That sounds that sounds better. Um, and I I I, I wanted to shoot, shoot this one because it's the earliest footage of Bill Droma that I was able to find, and I thought it would also be interesting to uh, to for people who have only seen the 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 later career Baba, seeing him more here, not even five years into his career, as more of a physically impressive presence as opposed to later on when he looked like a weird man made out of popsicle sticks. Um, and this is great. The two out of three falls match. Um, baby faces win the first fall. Baba chops Droma. Big knee across the chest. Uh, heels win the second after Destroy gets figure four on Yoshimura. Uh, they do a really cool spot after Yoshimura submits where it takes three guys, like all the seconds and the young boys come in the ring and unlock the Destroyer's legs from Yoshimura's. I thought that was a really cool touch, just putting over how dangerous a figure whole, figure four leg lock is and how it's an actual leg lock. Like, he couldn't get his legs unlocked. Um, really, really cool little thing there. And then the heels win the match because Yoshimura can't answer a 10 count to resume the final fall and all the seconds massaging his legs, but he can't even stand up, which I thought was a really cool, uh, realistic-looking finish that I was not expecting at all. Um, it's great to see Dromo young younger dromo and youngish dick buyer both here you can really see like how smooth they were when they were younger and the crispness in their work um and you can tell that they're both really good amateurs and how that translates into pro wrestling here and they're also really good at being heels um so they're not out wrestling the baby faces uh, they've got the little egg on their face uh, uh it's great to see Dromo putting out so much charisma. He's so charismatic yelling and just his gesticulation. It's really, it's really great. And you don't get to see that in a lot of the later footage that we have of him and destroyers charisma. is just off the freaking charts in this match. It's it's you watch this and it's, it's no wonder he became a star in Japan constantly 
talking and gesticulating whether he's in the ring or not and yelling you can hear him over the tv announcers at some point great match well worth if you have 35 40 minutes to, to sit and watch it highly recommend that um i got another one jeromo against the missouri mauler in florida in 1976 this is like a five minute tv match not quite a not quite a squash jeromo just gets a tiny bit of offense missouri mauler larry hamilton he's you know 45 years old looks every day of it but just like his brother can still move takes like these big bumps takes a nice bump through the ropes but just a five-minute tv match nothing nothing too exciting uh this one's really good uh bill dromo and don fargo quite a tag team there uh, you, you had me gilbert. at fargo <laughs> tommy gilbert and terry sawyer uh dromo's got heart punch on the back of his tights here which uh i assume that's his finisher at this point and they're managed by al green um uh Speaking of Al Green, the story in this match is here is Terry Sawyer not answering Tommy Gilbert's pleas of let's stay together and oh. refusing to tag him later, yeah, later in the match, uh, turning on him, causing him to get pinned. Uh, Romo and Fargo are the heels here, but they kind of remind me of one of those like 60s, 70s Crockett heel teams, like a Rip Hawk and a Swede Hansen, where it's like 85% just like really solid uh, scientific, stiff, snug wrestling, uh, but just little stuff like staying in a little longer after tagging out or holding on just right before the five count, stuff like that. I do, don't didn't know and still don't know that much about these guys as a, a tag team. But enjoyed the heck out of this match. Uh, and the last one is a very clip, very quick clip of uh, near the end of Jerome's career as the uh, Super Destroyer. And uh, As a, a super destroyer, a, a super destroyer. Yes. Um, this is something you see pretty frequently in these days. An older guy who can still still get it done in the ring can still go, um, but might look a little old in the face. Right. Uh, give him a mask. Let's see if we can get another little run out of him. And, and it seems like they were able to. Um, he still looks big and to be in pretty good shape, close to 45 years old, uh, but still looks really big, especially next to Ricky Morton. Uh, and Tromo gets him up in what they call a super paralyzer, which is what we would now refer to as a, a tombstone pile driver. And the ref, Jerry Calhoun, disqualifies him, sort of making a judgment call that the move was indeed a pile driver, uh, which, as we all know, was banned in Memphis. And then we get Lance and, and Dave back at the studio where they paraphrase a letter from the uh, CWA where they state that the hold, the move is not illegal, but they will continue to monitor the situation. So. Yeah, so just a way of getting a new move over. Obviously, they have the pile driver ban, but if they do that little tweak, it you know it provides for a little storyline. Is he yes. allowed to do it? And if he is, well, you know now he's allowed to do this devastating move just by you know making one little tweak to yes. it. And that's really that you know the evolution of not moves in wrestling, but also in angles. It's a very simple angle. You take a move that's, you know, just the banning of the pile driver makes, you know, for all sorts of ways to create storylines based on it. Them applying the pile driver while the referee isn't looking to win a match, or in this case, coming up with a different variation of the pile driver. In this case, what we now know as the tombstone pile driver. So just, you know, a, a way of uh, having very simple angles that, that can get a lot of heat. In those days. And speaking of getting heat, 
young Larry Whistler, who would get heat <laughs> not by doing a move, but by not doing a move for 17 and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when, uh, when Larry turned pro in 1973, he was given the ring name of uh, Larry Zabisco, and it's generally you know believed that this was a nod to the original Zabisco in wrestling, Stanislaus. But he wasn't the first wrestler in the Northeast to use that surname as an homage. There's an article uh, from Morristown, New Jersey, and we'll put this on. I'll post put this up on Twitter uh, at Al Gets Wrestling. But uh, this was uh, this was Bill Dromo's gimmick in the Northeast. Yeah, Bill Big Bill the Disco of Canada. Uh, yeah, and it's, and it's actually did you notice who he was wrestling on this on this card? Uh, Larry Simon, ah, Larry Simon, who is uh, Malenko? Yes, yeah, ding. I just want to give you a little ding there. Um, yeah, and there's a, a a story Dromo has told about the Zabisco uh, name. Like allegedly, uh, Vince Senior got a call from a furious Stanislaus saying, like, "Hey, I don't want anybody using this name," and Vince sort of, sort of blows them off and tells. Uh, Dromo, not to worry about it. You know, da, 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 da. keep using it, keep using it. But, but I think maybe Dromo sort of took the, that to heart and and didn't use the name anywhere else. But that was the only time he used that name. Well, so um, so if that's true, then was naming Larry years later uh, <laughs> just done to say screw you, Stan? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Stan is dead. I think by ten years at that point. Uh, okay. Well, then I guess they or, certainly didn't care. Or maybe not. I don't know. I gotta let me let me see. Stanislaus. Let me see. I'm just doing a. I don't like to do this, but I gotta. But you know, historically, the last thing you want to tell a McMahon is not to do something, because you're just virtually ensuring that they will do it over and over again. Died in 1967. Okay, so in between. But, but that's when you said that. I was like, uh, you know, most (laughs) we know how how spiteful. (laughs) <laughs> and vindictive you know, the the younger McMahon can be. That's not not something we uh, associate with Vince Senior, but maybe True. maybe that was more uh, <laughs> more genetic than 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 we than we know. <laughs> but yeah, so so there, and one of the many different names that Drummo used over the years, aside from Bill Drummo, uh, and one of the one of many super destroyers, and also Bill Zabisco. Uh, you mentioned earlier that. He's most often associated with Georgia. He lived there for many, many years. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he met his wife in Georgia. She was a, a dental assistant, and I guess he was in need of uh, some uh, dental care and found a whole lot more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so perhaps per, I, perhaps uh, this is how we ended up with Britt Baker. I, do, we, you know, do we know Britt? <laughs> Hopefully it's not how we got as Isaac Yankum, though. Oh yeah! Oh yikes! But you yeah, know, talking he... to, talking about a wrestler uh, getting married to a dental assistant. Uh, my stepsister, who is several years older than me, was a dental hygienist. Huh. Uh, she took me to my first ever house show, which was at Madison Square Garden in 1985. She actually brought her camera, and they let her take pictures from ringside. Wow! And yes, that means that she abandoned a fourteen-year-old me, left me in the crowd by myself while she went to take pictures. But anyway, fourteen, you're fine. You're right. fine. But 14. my sister was, for the most part, a good girl. But perhaps if things had played out differently, 
I could have been related by marriage to a, to a wrestler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they literally, night? they let her, they let her take pictures. They, she got inside the guardrail and, you know, took pictures at ringside. So, you know, perhaps if they had invited her backstage and perhaps if she wasn't, you know, the sweet, innocent girl that my sister is, and I don't want to hear anyone say anything else. Um, <laughs> I, so, you know, I went back and I looked at who was on the card and who would have made oh. interesting relatives. So had things gone a certain way, I could have been Bruno Sammartino's step-nephew-in-law because David wow. Sammartino wrestled on the card. So I could have been related to Bruno Sammartino if only my sister had been a little loose. <laughs> or if she had a hankering for older men, John, I could have ended up as the Rock's step-uncle-in-law because wow. Rocky Johnson was on the show. Okay. So, you know, if she had met Rocky and uh, they fell in love and got married, I could literally right now be the step-uncle of uh, the the Rock. Wow. Instead, oh, wow. I am merely a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Which is pretty nice <laughs> in his own. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's my claim to fame. And I guess Bill Dromo was involved, uh, post-wrestling, was involved with the Shriners for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you found an article from the October 16th, 1997 Atlanta Constitution, where uh, Dromo is arm wrestling a young lad and helping sell some pumpkins. Yes. At least he just seems like such a nice guy, Bill Dromo. I don't know. He's at least he just looks like a he looks like a nice guy. I don't know. Yeah. Like, well, I think it's because he got out he got out of wrestling at a relatively young age. He didn't become too terribly bitter like yeah. me and like other other guys <laughs> that stayed in wrestling for far too long. I don't, what are the Shriners? Like I know they're like an offshoot of the Masons, and I think they get the children's hospitals. Yeah. But mostly I just know them from the cover of that that Dead Kennedys record where they're riding around in their little cars. Yeah, they ride around in little cars, wear little hats. I guess just as like a little comedy routine to make the kids make the kids smile. I can't imagine Bill Drummo in one of those little cars. Unless well, Drummo was in a regular size car, <laughs> but <laughs> but you know with his size, it you know it looked like a little car. <laughs> But yeah, you know, it's it's nice to see the the nice side of these wrestlers uh when their wrestling careers were over. So we'll post that uh, article. It's not really an article, just a couple of pictures with a brief description of uh the work that Dromo had been doing in his life post professional wrestling with his dental assistant wife in their little cars. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned Bob Armstrong earlier. He's one of the upper mid-carders. Uh, they all had a weekly average spot rating between 0.6 and 0.8. Now, aside from Bob, other baby faces in this category included Dick Steinborn, Klondike Bill, the professional, who was Doug Gilbert, Doug Lindsay under a mask, George Scott, Jimmy Dancing Bear, and Jim Wilson. On the heel side, you've got Luke Graham, and the brother tag team of Rocket and Flash Monroe. Now, Jim Wilson is, of course, the Jim Wilson, who wrote wrestling's equivalent of Jim Bouton's Ball Four, which was the first book to sort of go behind the scenes and expose all the, uh, uh, you know, shady things going on behind the scenes in professional baseball. Uh, But Jim's book was entitled Chokehold. John, uh, you read Chokehold? I it's probably been ten years yeah, plus since here. I've read it, but I need I need to I need to reread it actually. Uh, it's one of those yeah. 
It's one of those things, you know, if you read it, there are a lot of things he says that are easily dispelled by factual data by doing research. But at mm -hmm. the same time, Wilson got a bad rap because so many people inside wrestling wanted to attack him for coming out with this expose. They would claim ah, he was never more than a jobber. And that's not the case here. And at this time, he's an upper mid carder. He got a decent push because of his, you know, legit football background. But, you know, the, the truth is he got a nice push at first because he had a name from football. The reality is he was not fantastic in the ring and he wasn't terribly charismatic. And so he wasn't getting the opportunities he felt he deserved and, you know, was was not happy with that. Uh, my favorite story about Jim Wilson, him and Thunderbolt end up going to work for Ann Gunkel, uh, not immediately after the split, but, you know, after several months uh, of Ann running all south. Thunderbolt and Jim come in. They end up leaving after like two months and start an outlaw. So they're running an outlaw to the outlaw. Yeah. And that one ends up a disaster and Jim Wilson ends up suing his business partners. Oh, so only in wrestling can you, you know, be working for an outlaw promotion and decide, well, this isn't rinky dink enough for me. I'm going to run an outlaw to the outlaw. Although by all accounts... Gunkel was not a rinky-dink operation at all. She she paid very well, uh, you know, for initially she was running a very professional organization. As most outlaws do, the issue is, aside from who you start up with, it's hard to get new talent into an outlaw mm -hmm. because they're afraid they're going to get blackballed. So the issue of a stale roster, which we mentioned earlier as something that could have been on the verge of happening in Georgia was what happened to Anne. Uh, she just had trouble getting good quality talent. And I think the biggest, and she only had one major jump after the initial split, obviously all the crew, except for three guys went with Gunkel. But after that, the only really big name she was able to bring in for a period of time was Tarzan Tyler. And that was, you know, that was a, you know, that, that was the equivalent of, you know, DiBiase showing up on WCW, you know, that was like a, a big talent raid of sorts. But after that, once the initial guys that, you know, worked for Gunkel started leaving, she couldn't get quality wrestlers to fill their spots and ended up pushing guys like Bearcat Wilkerson and Super mm -hmm. Soul Man Davis. And uh, that was the beginning of the end for Gunkel. If you notice, a lot of these outlaw promotions have a shelf life of two years. Yep. yep. Gunkel was slightly less than two. The Culkins in Mississippi were a few months shy of two. Dean Silverstone in Washington was two. Einhorn's big run was more like a year and a half. And then Johnny Power sort of kept it going as a regional outlaw in the Carolinas for another eight months to a year. So again, you're still close to that, you know, two year mark. Then the idea of not being able to get new talent after you set your initial roster is why they, they all seem to not only go out of business, but all around the same two year mark that that's, I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Now on the heel side, uh, we also, Aside from Luke Graham and the Monroe brothers, there was also a wrestler, Kubla Khan, who we've talked about previously as working for McGurk. This was uh, this was Henry Peluso. Uh, it's interesting that 
Kublai Khan, of course, is going to be named after Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but it's spelled K-U-B-L-I-A Khan. So you have El Mongol as a babyface, and you have uh, another wrestler being portrayed as from Mongolia as a heel. But a few months into the year, Kublai Khan turns babyface, and Mongol and Khan are, become a tag team. Huh. So they're portrayed uh, as both being from Mongolia. Neither of them were. However, yep. they were fellow countrymen in real life because both of them were born in Mexico. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that Molina, Raul Molina, worked as El Mongo early in his career in Mexico. Like, I, 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 in my head, I could see him coming to the U.S., you know, and he's working for working in Texas and, and, and Doc Sarpolis or, or Dory Funk Sr. is like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. You're going to shave your head, you're going to grow the mustache, and you're the Mongolian now. Um, but, but no, he was doing that in Mexico before he even came to the U.S., as opposed to Henry Peluso, who for the most part wrestled as himself under his real name right. in, in, in Mexico. So it wasn't I thought until, that was interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, it's interesting to know how they come up with it. Most, you know, most of the Mexican-born wrestlers that wrestle in Mexico would portray you know, Mexicans. Uh, but in this, this is one of those instances where it didn't. So that's a little history trivia. He also hopefully learned a little bit about Mongolian history. Uh, so that's your trivia for the month, but John, are you ready for your trivia of the month? I'm ready, baby. I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. It is time for John Plays Gordon Soli's Championship Wrestling Trivia. I mentioned earlier you're on a hot streak. For the last two months, you have gone four for four. Plus, on top of that, you have one what we'll call lifeline or extra credit <laughs> in case you miss one. But, John, oh. I'll say this. I pull these questions at random from the yep. Gordon Soli Championship Wrestling Trivia game. I have a, I have a good feeling about this month. Question number one, who held the AWA World Heavyweight title from 1960 to 1965 when he lost it to Mad Dog Vashon? I will I'll go with Vern Gagne. That is correct. Question number two, what country does Tony Gurria hail from? Tony Gurria is from New Zealand. That is correct. Okay. Two for two. Question number three. Name the wrestling show seen on NBC on Saturday nights. The Saturday night's main event. Correct. They, the only way they could have made that question easier is if they would have said, <laughs> name the wrestling show seen on NBC on Saturday night that often featured a main event type of matchup. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Three for three. Let's see if we can go four for four. This is a true or false question. Ooh. True or false. Cecil B. De Mornay was the first recognized wrestling manager in the late 30s. I'm going to go with false. False? You're going to go with false? I'm going false, yeah. You are correct. 
<laughs> I even tried to trick you. <laughs> you tried to get me. Oh, you tried. Always, uh, always, always, you know, go with your first instincts. Never back down. Never, yeah. never waver. Nope, nope. You are correct. Four for four for the third month in a row. Baby. Good job. It's like Joe DiMaggio over here. Jeez. <laughs> you're doing, you're batting better than I did in my uh, coming out of retirement managerial bout where I missed a spot. So you're well, I saw you. I saw you posing with what was it a uh, Ron Wright's grandkid or something like, with the chisel. Yes. I would have yes. service too. Oh, geez. I was I was this close to the actual original chisel. Oh, it was God. beautiful. You, what was it like? Did you feel the chisely part of it? Uh, I I was. We weren't allowed to touch it. Are you kidding? No, you weren't. No. Oh, really? No. Oh, I thought you'd yeah. pass it around like a. Oh no 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 no. This was kids gather around, take a look. Not too close. All right. Goodbye. Yeah, no, it's a uh, it's a precious protected heirloom in the Wright family. Oh, yeah, uh, a little further down the cards in Georgia in 1971 are the mid Carters with a spot rating of between 0.4 and 0.6. This category is always fun to look at for me because there's always some surprises in this category. It might be guys that you only knew worked in one territory at one time, and you know here we're coming to the realization that so many of these guys you know, just worked all these different territories over the career. Also, a lot of guys you may have heard of, but don't know much about, or guys that you just see as mid-carters everywhere that never really broke through. So some examples on the babyface side, we have Bob Griffin. We have the team of Jim and Jack Dalton. And in this case, Jim Dalton is Jim Bogus, but Jack Dalton is a young Randy Colley. We also have Roberto Soto, Robert Fuller, Sabu Sang, who is Jose Gonzalez, and others. On the heel side, Carl von Stroheim, Guillotine Gordon, Skandor Akbar, Crusher Carlson, Michelle Dubois, who is Alexis Smirnoff, Nikita Malkovich. That's a whole lot of foreign heels. Yeah. Stroheim, von Stroheim, Akbar, Dubois, Malkovich, and... One more guy who, for me, definitely fits the category of guys I have heard of but didn't know much about, and that is Billy Spears. Uh, John, you're a big Beatles fan, right? Yes, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a fan, yeah. So let me introduce to you <laughs> the one and only Billy Spears. Every time I hear the name Billy Spears, I think of Billy Shears. <laughs> from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, yeah, me and, too. Uh, yeah. But Spears, I think a lot of our listeners have heard the name, might know a little something about him from some of the, the clips that are on YouTube circulating mostly from his time in Gulf Coast. And others might not know much at all. And really, uh, not just Gulf Coast and Continental, but Georgia, Florida, and Goulas. Between those territories, I think that's where Spears spent 95% of his career. So if those places in the seventies aren't in your wheelhouse, he might, you might not be all that familiar with him. So we're going to hopefully give you some more info about him. And of course, it's great to hear about him. It's another thing to see him. And one of the ways we do this is via the YouTube footage curated by John Boucher and compiled in a playlist on our YouTube channel. So John, what did you put together for the one and only Billy Spears? 
one of the Billy Goats. Uh, so this first one, um, I wanted to get some Gulf Coast Billy here for everybody. Uh, and number two, I wanted you to to confirm the identity of some guys here for me, if possible. Um, so he's in his manager wrestler here role here for the for the first fall at least. Uh, wrestling his partner is the, the Raging Cajun. Now, I know he managed the Raging Cajun in the Gulf Coast, who were Wayne Ferris and Larry Latham, I believe. And I think this is Latham in the first fall here. Um, and then they, they, they that after the first fall. Spears claims to be injured uh, and sends out the other Cajun, who I think is Wayne Ferris, but I'm not sure. So that's why I'm I'm basically posting this one here for you to confirm that for me. Um, and they're wrestling Ken Lucas and Johnny Eagles, both of whom we have uh, talked about in months past. Ken Lucas, always the first guy I bring up when people uh, talk about underrated wrestlers who are actually underrated and not just underpushed. Um, two out of three falls match. First of all, basically the Johnny Eagle show doing his Houdini of wrestling thing, escaping from whatever hold the heels have on him. Uh, Spears is really good in this role of uh, having egg on his face, trying to get uh, Johnny Eagles in a headlock and Johnny Eagle doing the Johnny Eagle thing of just like scooting out of it. He's really good at that in that role there. Um, and after you know the second fall, Spears is on the outside, and he's kind of disappointing because there's no outside interference from Billy Spears. I was kind of expecting him to do something dastardly, but he just didn't really do much after that. Um, actually, a lot more sportsmanlike than I was expecting him to be. Um, the next one is probably just if you've seen Billy Spears and not. We're not aware you have seen Billy Spears. This is probably the video you've seen, the uh, the Terry the Hulk Boulder versus Andre the Giant arm wrestling match, 79. Um, Spears at ringside with a cane wearing a, a red velvet sports jacket and a black top hat with a big pink ribbon coming out of it. It looks like a, like a nightmarish combination of like Johnny Depp's Willy Wonka meets Leon Russell or something. It's like an awesome wrestling outfit. <laughs> um and they do the, the the arm wrestling thing there, and once uh, once Hogan's defeat seems imminent, Spears jumps in, and Andre goes after him, and Andre gets Spears by the collar, then Hogan nails Andre with the arm wrestling table, busts him open, and they brawl for a bit. Um, this next one is my favorite one. Um, Billy Spears, Dick Slater, Houston, March of 82. Quick five-minute match. I just wanted to include this one because it's really the only billy spears like single match i could find without scrubbing through hours of gulf coast tv um he's you know he's 10 years past his prime here kind of looks and shapes like a root vegetable almost and he's wearing like a green singlet over a full black bodysuit he doesn't look great not a big guy i think even the ref is taller than him but you can if you watch this clip you can tell that he's he's good you can tell he's able to work crowd able to be a good heel um, and even the, the, the 10 seconds where he actually wrestles doing like a drop down and a you know, fireman's carry, it actually looks good. He sells really well. He does the perfect, the heel begging off thing. Uh, and you could just look at this clip and imagine 10 years prior, he could be a main event heel in, in, in a territory like Gulf coast. Uh, so I highly recommend that. It's a quick little five minute match. Um, two years later, 
I got uh, Billy Spears, Aaron Anderson, and Jerry Stubbs versus the Rat Patrol, which is a Johnny Rich, Scott Armstrong, Tonga kid, Southeastern, in September of 84. Billy's in short tights in this one, and he doesn't look, does not look great. And the Rat Patrol kind of body shame him in their promo here. Uh, and they come you know, come back from the thing. There's a quick promo there with Arn Anderson and Billy Spears waving his cane around, saying how the Rat Patrol embarrassed him and made him strip down to his underwear to wrestle. And Arn just sort of stares into the camera and yeah, smiles and pats Billy on the back and they go to commercial. Uh, you know, and six months later, Arn would be with, with Crockett. So it's an interesting little time there in both of these guys' careers, I thought. Yeah, so that'll give you an opportunity to see Billy Spears in action. Like so many wrestlers, even the ones that weren't big stars in big territories, they all found themselves in the ring with future legends at one point or another. Of course, uh, in these clips, we have Spears managing a young Hulk Hogan when he was known as Terry the Hulk Boulder. But a decade earlier... Spears faced two other future world champions and Hall of Famers. So, John, who did Spears compete against in 1969 in Odessa, Texas, and Columbus, Georgia? Yeah, in September, September 16th, 1969, we got we got Spears wrestling against a young Dusty Rhodes in what looks to be the opening match at the County Auditorium in Odessa, Texas. And just a little over two months later. Spears wrestled against Nick Bockwinkle in Columbus, Georgia at the Municipal Auditorium. It's really interesting looking at his career or arc, if you want to call it that. And you see him, you know, working for Crockett in Amarillo, uh, sort of like a prelim guy. And then right around, you know, this time here, like 71, you see him creeping up into more of a mid-card role in Georgia. Uh, the feud with Roberto Soto, I think being the one of the longest of his career, and then him really hitting his stride in Gulf Coast, more of a, a main eventer and working like these hot feuds with you guys like Ricky Gibson, Ken Lucas, Mike Boyette, Gorgeous Georgia Jr. And he just seems like such a good fit for Gulf Coast, like a smaller guy, you know, but could really get a lot of heat, rile up the fans. You know, you have matches with in Alabama against Dick Dunn with the stipulation is, you know, the winner gets. Dick Dunn's prize Billy Goat. He's just perfect. Perfect for <laughs> Billy Spears. He reminds me like a scuzzier Bobby Shane, you know, where like Billy Spears looks like a guy who doesn't wash his hands after he goes to the bathroom. You know, whereas Bobby Shane will have like several attendants with towels and oh, yeah. atomizer spray. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Billy Spears is just like poop molecule all over him, doesn't care, shaking hands. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's just Gulf Coast seems like such a good fit for him. Yeah, oftentimes we see wrestlers that, that can't get past a certain level in the larger territories like Amarillo and Crockett. They will go to a smaller territory and, and find themselves higher up on the cards. And that that's what scuzzy Bobby Shane did. <laughs> and like so many folks who chose professional wrestling as their vocation, scuzzy Bobby Shane seems to have had some run-ins with the law. Uh, so John, what did you find on his, uh, police blotter, uh, during the time period that he was active in wrestling? There's, there's some, some marijuana charges, uh, some less than 20 grams, some more than 20 grams, um, some unspecified drug charges, which are interesting. So Billy liked to, like to party. 
some 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 breach of peace. So okay. probably well, what's what's prob- the prob- prob- what's what's the big one uh, that we think was related to a story that Austin Idol has has told on several occasions. Oh, the big one, the big one. You're talking about the big one. The big one is aggravated assault of a non-family member with a gun. <laughs> that's a big one. Um, so that's the yeah. So Austin, Austin Idol has told the story on his podcast and allegedly places it sometime in the late 70s or early 80s. And the story is he he pulls up into the parking lot, arena parking lot, sees a bunch of cop cars, and the cops are like, hey, are you Austin Idol? Uh, he uses Austin Idol in the story. Not sure if the cops would refer to him by his real name, gimmick name, whatever. Uh, but he confirms his identity. The cops ask him if he knows Billy Spears. Idol confirms, yes, I do. And then the cops tell him that they've arrested Spears for soliciting a hit on Idol from two undercover cops and charged him with aggravated assault or conspiracy to commit aggravated assault. Um, so there's a lot about this story that would make you, you know, raise an eyebrow and question its veracity and its wrestling, and we do that anyway. Um, but you know, but you see that charge buried among the other ones, uh, and it, you know, it was on July 26th, 1979. So, Idol and Spears both do appear in the territory prior to this charge, but it's interesting to note that Spears does not appear in any Gulf Coast cards or anywhere that I can find from August. Uh, to very late October of 1979. Um, so, play yeah. so the timing the timing matches up with you know when 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 Spears disappears, and that it, it would appear that this was a very real incident that Idol is talking about, and it leads to Spears doing some hard time. Yeah, yeah, and it's just to play devil's advocate here. I think that you know they they were. Also in Southeastern at the same time, a few years later. So I suppose, so I don't, so I, I don't know. There's the chance they have smoothed this over by then or this alleged incident didn't happen until later, but I couldn't find any charges <laughs> of that sort that would line up later. So that's uh, a lot of, a lot of conjecture, but it's very, very interesting that, that the timelines match up so, so conveniently. Yeah, again, just the way the timeline matches up, it it seems that that would sort of verify that it happened and when it happened. And yes, maybe a few years later, they you know let bygones be bygones and were able to coexist uh, in the same place briefly a few years yeah. down the road. Um, you also found something really interesting in the classifieds section of the Columbus Ledger in September 5th. Uh, this is on September 5th, 1972. So I'll read this. Uh, it's it's in the classified section. And it goes, where is little Billy Spears professional wrestler? Why was his last appearance in Columbus on August 2nd, a week before he was to accept or reject a $200 reward offer to fight fantastic Harry Parker? Is he afraid to tangle with a real man in a real match? Has this little fellow seen it necessary to leave our midst? Or did someone find it necessary to depart him in order to protect him from me? Why don't you, the wrestling public, call or write Mr. Fred Ward at the sports arena concerning Little Spears? Another reward will be forthcoming soon. 
So this by itself is <clears throat> really odd. <laughs> and from reading it, we don't know what if this is real, if it's a joke. Who is Harry Parker? Uh, I've never heard of a wrestler named Harry Parker. Have you? No, me neither. No. Okay. So I did a little digging. And I found two other things of note from earlier in the year in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, the first is <clears throat> the first is an article um, where it says a pair of heavyweight wrestlers will stage a wrestling and karate show at the Fourth Student Airborne Battalion at Fort Benning Wednesday night. There will be a fast gun draw, a karate demonstration and then a wrestling bout between Waco Smith and Harry Parker. Huh. So, you know, these might not have been professional wrestlers. These might have been, you know, uh, guys stationed at Fort Benning, Benning, who were amateur wrestlers who decided to just stage a little exhibition. So that might be, you know, what Harry Parker's background was. He was pr probably a legitimate wrestler, um, who, you know, and if we want to make assumptions who maybe possibly was wanting to get into pro wrestling and either felt a grandstand challenge from Spears was in order, or perhaps maybe he approached Spears and asked, you know, for his help, getting him involved and Spears told him to fuck off, or perhaps he thought, you know, get his way into professional wrestling was to, you know, for real, have a, you know, have a fight with Billy Spears. I don't know. So that was from April of 1972. But a month before the classified ad you found, I found another classified ad from uh, July 10th. And it says, reward. I will pay $200 to Mr. Fred Ward or Mr. Billy Spears if little Billy meets and defeats me, Harry Parker, at the Columbus Municipal Auditorium on or after August 9th, 1972. This is a bona fide offer, not made in jest or as a practical joke. So, whoever yeah. Harry Parker was, uh, yeah. it seems that he probably was a soldier. You know, it was uh, was uh, in the military uh, at Fort Benning, had a legitimate wrestling background, and for whatever reason, wanted to have a legitimate fight with Billy Spears, and was offering two hundred dollars to do so. Huh. Fantastic Harry Parker. Fantastic Harry Parker. And uh, I have never seen his name involved in professional wrestling before or after this uh, bona fide grandstand challenge. Huh. It's interesting that he, I, th I thought in the, uh, in the, in the, the first one, I guess both of them actually where he, you know, he cites the name of Fred Ward. Yeah. It makes me wonder a little bit about it too, you know? Again, it, you know, it seems like he's, trying to quote unquote work his own angle to get involved in wrestling huh. somehow based on the yeah. other evidence. But we will probably never know unless any of our listeners uh, know this uh, fantastic Harry Parker. Yeah. If so, let us know. Yes, we do. Yes. Now uh, also in the territory, you have a, uh, a large batch of preliminary wrestlers. The uh, most interesting name here would be Jerry Oates who had just begun his career in the summer of 1970. We also list the part-timers, and, and this includes guys who didn't wrestle enough to be part of the roster, which are usually preliminary wrestlers. But as we mentioned earlier, also included Ray Gunkel and Buddy Fuller, who are, you know, super-duper stars, 
who are also office who don't wrestle a full-time schedule. And we'll see this in many territories, guys like Vern Gagne, Fritz von Erich, Stu Hart late in his career, even to a lesser extent, Watts and Eddie Graham. They're main eventers, but they're not wrestling as often as the rest of the crew. And in particular, uh, I mentioned Gunkel. I think uh, in the 52 weeks of 1971, he wrestled 27 times and only uh, two of those were outside of Atlanta. So he's wrestling approximately every other week uh, at the Friday night cards in Atlanta. And that's pretty much it. He spends the rest of his time in the office. Now, two other wrestlers show up in the part-timer category for a similar reason. They only worked in certain towns. And those were Leon Ogle and Choo Choo Lin. And they both worked almost exclusively in Macon and Columbus, which were the two main towns promoted by Fred Ward. Now, Fred had his own TV separate from Atlanta. In fact, I think both Columbus and Macon had their own separate TV shows. And Ward seems to have had a little input on who he booked. Uh, Choo Choo had been wrestling since the mid-1950s, and much of that time was spent wrestling for Ward, particularly in Macon, which was where Choo Choo grew up. So... As his career was winding down, Choo Choo couldn't wrestle full time. Uh, He could only wrestle, you know, a couple of times a week, once a week. And his old pal, Fred Ward, was willing to comply and book him occasionally. And in the case of Ogle, Ogle usually worked as a referee, but would wrestle every now and then, usually uh, in a gimmick match, like a tag team match with Homer O'Dell or Dandy Jack Donovan, one of the two managers in the territory, on the other team. And in real life, Leon Ogle was Fred Ward's son-in-law. So there you go. There's the connection. Uh, He also never really wrestled much outside of Georgia. He had a brief run for McGurk a few years later. Also very briefly in Gulf Coast Continental, Florida, and for Goulis. And that's about it. Now, of course, John, most territories utilize local promoters in some fashion. From uh, Fred Ward to Zacco in Pennsylvania. Uh, we've talked extensively about George Culkin promoting the Mississippi towns for McGurk and later for Watts. And we've touched on Bob and Leonard Clay uh, running some of the towns for McGurk like Wichita Falls, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and Joplin, Missouri. And in those cases, the promoters might have had a little say in who would be booked on their cards. Uh, you know, hey, Leroy, uh, that Tom Jones really got over for us, uh, you know, when he worked last night. Uh, can can we have him again next week? But for the most part, their main function was to promote the shows in their towns that use talent provided by the booking office in matches set up by the booker. That's typically how it went but in some places, the local promoters had a little bit of stroke, and in some places, they had more than a little bit of stroke. In fact, next month, we're going to focus on a territory that had one local promoter who was notorious for pushing himself as one of the top stars in his towns, even though he was a mid-carder uh, everywhere else, who may or may not have tried to double-cross Harley Race in a match, and who once wrote Santa Claus a ticket. <laughs> Talk about having a lot of leeway. Yeah. He wrote Santa Claus a ticket. But Fred Ward seems to fall somewhere in the middle. He could use the aging and semi-retired Choo Choo Lin occasionally and put him in a good spot. 
And while Ogle was often booked high on the cards, it was in a gimmick match. Uh, he has a high spot rating, but he's usually working against Homer Odell or Jack Donovan or in a tag team match, you know, with a quote unquote full-time wrestler against the manager and one of their charges. Um, I'm not sure. I, I know Fred had his own TV. I don't know how much say he had in 1971 as far as putting together the TV, putting together the angles and the house show lineups. It seems, though, that he had more say in those issues than most local promoters did at this time. The problem with trying to get answers to these questions is the answers depend on who you ask. Yeah, like it, like Dromo himself has said about it. Oh, I love working for Fred Ward. Fred Ward always booked me stronger than they would. You know, he, he booked me stronger in his towns than they would typically book me in Atlanta. Right. And um, I think, and, again, we talked earlier. The reason for that is because Atlanta has Gunkel and Bobo and yep. Bachwinkle and Blassie yep. coming in there. There's just, yep. you know. Dromo, he's a main eventer, but he's not his name at the top of the card at the City Auditorium in Atlanta. Is going to fill that building the way they'll fill smaller buildings in Macon, Columbus and the surrounding yep. areas. Exactly. Um, you know, we've talked in the past uh, when when we are trying to figure out the truth um, between something that that happened in McGurk's territory. The McGurk side is one thing. The Culkin side is another. And the Watt side is something else all, all together. Mm hmm. So uh, we really don't know. We can speculate. We can say, I heard this. I heard that. The truth is Fred Ward had more stroke than most local promoters, but there were a handful that had more stroke than him. And, and again, at this point in time, Fred is probably doing the best he can to, to play the middle. He's got the things he wants to do, but he also understands that uh, without uh, the Jones and Fuller you know, booking office, with, without having access to that talent, his towns are going to take a huge hit. So he's got to play the middle and do what he can to keep everybody happy. So a year in the life on chartingtheterritories.com. This month it covers Georgia Championship Wrestling in 1971, which, as we mentioned earlier, was the year of my birth. And today, the day we're recording yeah. this podcast is the day of my birth. Yeah. So now that, all, now that all of you have learned... When my birthday is, I expect birthday cards and presents from all our listeners next year. Yes. But that, so that's what our listeners have learned. Uh, each oh. month on the podcast, John and I each name one thing we learned uh, over the course of the last 30 or so days. And it's a segment we call This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? So, earlier this month, I was reading an interview with uh, Exotic Adrian Street. And, uh, he was telling a story about getting uh, smartened up when he was training. And the interviewer, I think I want to say it was Scott Teal, <clears throat> mentioned something about being an outsider and walking into a locker room of wrestlers. And then they all immediately get silent, except for you know, the one guy that pipes up that says, kayfabe. And then everybody goes, goes quiet. Uh, Adrian Street agreed with Scott, uh, then went on to add that uh, over in England, Instead of kayfabe, they would say queens. Uh, he then explained how instead of using the old like carny terms over there, they use mostly cockney rhyming slang. Uh, 
you know, in, in the in the locker room. Uh, Queens, for example, uh, was meant to mean stranger, and was derived from Queens Park, which was shortened from Queens Park Ranger, which makes perfect sense in cocky rhyming slang and nowhere else. Uh, he then told a story about. I forget, forget if it was a new ring announcer or an undercard referee, someone new who was working on a card but wasn't smartened up. Uh, so the guy comes in to the locker room, and Adrian and Miss Linda are there, and, and, and neither of them had seen this guy before. Miss Linda clears her throat and yells, Queens. And then the guy gets gets, gets all angry, starts kind of losing it and freaking out, and, and goes over to exotic Adrian and Miss Linda and starts yelling, uh, look, I respect you guys and everything that you do, but I got to tell you something. I've got a wife and kids, and damn it, I'm no queen. <laughs> <laughs> and then and Adrian describes, you know, there's everyone in the locker room along with himself and Miss Linda trying to keep a straight face and also calm this guy down and reassure him that no one was insulting him. So, so. Uh, yeah, back then at least there was there was no kayfabe in England, just just queens. Right. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, as for what I learned this month, uh, we talked about this a couple of months ago when we were discussing Chris Markov. Uh, when I was putting together uh, my book, at one point I was going to include dates of birth and and dates of death, and as I was going along, I realized. There were wrestlers that just because we don't have a confirmation that they passed didn't mean that they didn't pass away. We just some of these guys that that weren't in that didn't stay in touch. We just don't know. Uh, I I need to thank one of our uh, one of the folks that follows us on Facebook, John Horton, who used to attend cards in Jackson, Mississippi, and a few other Mississippi towns in uh, in the late '60s and much of the 1970s for this information. And after uh, checking out myself, I looked around to all the major wrestling sites, even checked the archives of the Wrestling Observer to see if anyone else had noted the death of this wrestler. And to the best of my knowledge, this might not have ever made wrestling circles. But on October 31st, 2016, Jim Osborne passed away. John, is this news to you? News to me, yeah. I yeah, like I said, I yeah, I'm. It's possible uh, somewhere someone caught it, but I checked all the major places uh, for you know dates of death of uh, wrestlers from this era. Couldn't find anything. So Jim Osborne, who of course portrayed Doctor X in Leroy McGurk's territory and had a huge run in the early 1970s, and this was off the heels of him teaming with Dick Byer in the AWA, where he was double X to Byers Dr. X. Uh, he passed away in uh, October 2016, which I got to say, if you were going to leave the planet Earth right before Election Day 2016, it was probably a good time to do it. Because, <laughs> man, what what uh, the last six and a half years have, uh, have been as quite the shit show. But yeah, Dr. X, Jim Osborne, a, a key player in Leroy McGurk's territory in the 1970s passed away in 2016. And, and I learned that for the first time this month. Wow. Yeah. He, and that's, 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 you know, he's a, a great example of a guy at that, 
you know, that that perfect storm of a guy who's at that level during that time who has the uh, a, a name that's common enough <laughs> right. where that, that falls under the radar, you know? Yeah, it's hard to track every obituary for anyone named Jim Osborne, let alone yeah. the multiple spellings of, of Osborne with an E, without an E, with an O-U, yeah. and so on and so forth. And again, I don't believe he kept too much in touch, although it's interesting because he was living in Las Vegas at the time of his death, but I don't believe he was involved in oh. Flower Alley Club at all. Interesting. Yeah. So there, there you go. That's uh, what we learned this month. And if you want to learn more about wrestling, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. And if you want to learn more about Dr. X and Leroy McGurk's territory in the early 1970s, don't forget to check out the 1971 to 1973 Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana Wrestling Almanac available on Amazon and also at Charting the Territories. Dot com. So, John, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Please follow me there. Lots of lots of fun wrestling content. Uh, and if you're not sick of my voice yet, I was recently on John McAdams' Sticks of Wrestling podcast. Thanks to John and Steve for having me on for two episodes. Wow. 244 and 245. Yeah. Were they, of, wicked, were, they, were they wicked good? They were, they were both wicked good and raw-boned. Yes. Nice. Excellent. Now, as I teased earlier, next month, we're going to look at a territory that featured as a local promoter a, a man who liked to lay down the law. A man who liked to lay down the law. Mm. I'm not going to tell you what territory it is, but let's just say I don't know what this local promoter's musical tastes were, but I would imagine he liked funk. Next month, the Charting the Territories podcast will be released on the second Thursday of the month, and going forward, that will become the permanent release day. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. Al Get signing off. We will see everybody come April. See you in April, everybody. <laughs>